It's good to be back in the book of Romans as we are um, continuing in our 3,000 foot flyover. Uh, we, we're not going to dive deep and, and really you're reading chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans and you're saying, man, I got some questions and hold on to those questions, continue to write those questions down because I too have questions and we will, we're going to address them. We may not address them today. But we have more opportunities in community group, over cups of coffee, and hopefully, by God's grace, we'll have opportunity when we get back to Romans 9, 10, and 11 on our deep dive in, I don't know, five or six years, we'll get there. But, so hold those questions, write them down, and what we do, but seriously, like, we want to take those things and we want to take them to God. We don't want to just say, oh, I didn't get my question answered. We want to go to God's Word. What we've seen in Romans is exactly that. Paul has these questions, and he actually interjects them periodically through the book of Romans. Some people think that those questions are what people are asking, but remember, Paul's writing to a, a people that he doesn't know. He doesn't know the congregation in Rome, in Rome. He hasn't visited them. He didn't plant that church, but he's writing to them to answer some of the questions that he knows that they would have because what we do know about that congregation is it was filled with both Gentiles and Jews, right? And so these two different people groups are gathering together under the Lord of all, as we just read. And so they're trying to figure out, like, how, does, how do we live in this? How do we move in this? How do we function? How do we love one another and love God? And does God love us the same way? Because th this is the chosen people, and I'm being grafted in. And so he's got all of this language here that Paul is giving to the, the church in Rome, one of the beautiful things is the questions that you and I would ask are the same questions that Paul asked. Many scholars believe that after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, he goes into the desert and he's there searching the Scriptures. Now, if you are looking on a tablet or if you're reading on your phone or some sort of electronic device and not looking at a, at a you know, the written word today, it's going to be a little harder to see, but if you have a Bible and you're looking at it, look how many quotations are in these three chapters. Paul is referencing the Old Testament, and by my count, more than 30 times in three chapters. Some of them he's combining some Old Testament passages, and he's referencing. So Paul asks these same questions, like what does that mean for the Jews? What does that mean that God would save and that God would harden hearts and all of these things. And so then he interjects those questions and answers them with the Old Testament Scripture. Because here's what's beautiful. God is immutable. He didn't change. When Jesus came, he didn't become suddenly this, this different God, a different way to be saved. God has always been the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we, as his people, have always taken hold of him the same way. By faith. Trusting in what he says and taking hold of that truth. And so we're going to see that unpacked for us this morning. So when I say, hey, write those questions down, I'm not, it's not just saying me trying to get out of it. It's actually, no, write those questions down and then take them to God's word. Because he is the same and he's given us everything that we need for life and breath, for joy and peace, for worship of who he is. And so I pray that today we would see that. Now, 9 through 11 is a little different from verses 1 through 8. 1 through 8, we, we talk sometimes and we use some language um, 
gospel in the air and gospel on the ground. And maybe this is the first time you're hearing it, but if you've gone through the, the partnership um, material that we have where we, we kind of walk through, like, what, does it look, what is the gospel? And the gospel is the work of God, the work particularly of Jesus through his life, his death, his re- burial, his resurrection, his ascension. The gospel is the work of Jesus. We have implications of that gospel in our lives that now we go and we live proclaiming that good news. But one of the ways that we look at it is a gospel on the ground and a gospel in the air. Gospel on the ground is this. The gospel on the ground is a personal redemptive implication of the gospel. Through this lens, we come to understand the means of salvation, the gospel power. We've seen that in Romans 1-8. through Like, how has God saved sinners like you and I individually? He's done it by His grace that we would take hold of by faith in the work of Jesus, that He died on the cross for our sins. He took our sin and our shame and He gave us His righteousness. And so now today, you and I have a righteousness that has been given to us, graciously, mercifully given to us. So that's that gospel on the ground, like the individual and how that happens. The gospel on the ground points to regeneration, a heart that's changed, justification, how we are made right with God, sanctification as we're continued to be created and and changed from glory to glory into His image, conformed to His image, and then this glorification that's that's currently happening like in the church and will happen forever in eternity where we will glorify God in who we are and how we live how we worship. So the gospel on the ground points to regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification, and the life of the believer in Christ. Up to this point, that's what we've been talking about. That's what Paul's been trying to drive home to the church in Rome. So it's almost like he steps out of that in verses 9 through 11 and gives us this bigger picture. If that's what it means for you individually, what does that mean for the bigger picture of who God is and how he is redeeming his people for his glory? We saw that particularly in Romans 5, 1 and 2. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's an an individual thing that that you have in Christ today. Like that's, we're already worshiping. That's so exciting that we get to to read this and say, that's me today. I am made right with God because of the grace of of God poured out on me through His Son, Jesus. So now we have this gospel in the air, this bigger picture. The gospel in the air is a historical, redemptive implication of the gospel. It's the storyline of Scripture. Through this lens, we come to understand the reason for salvation, the gospel purpose. Why is God saving, period? For his glory. You see, God is the center of the story. The whole thing is about him. But you and I today are grafted into that story. We're brought into that story. We get to be part of it for his glory. And so, what is that overall arc? Gospel in the air tells the story of God in creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That's a beautiful story. God made everything perfect. Through the fall, we sin entered into the world, and now it's broken. Like you and I experience brokenness, so we can be honest about that. Things are broken. Things are not right. I struggle with sin. People die. There's sickness. 
It's, it's, life can be hard. There's suffering. We don't have to pretend that those things aren't true because the, the Gospel in the air tells us that they are true. There's a fall that happened and things are broken, but God didn't leave it there. He is redeeming a people for Himself. He brings redemption. And He's restoring all things. And the crazy thing is, like that restoration, the end result of that restoration is, is different from the first creation, and some would say it's better. I don't know. Like That's one of the mysteries where I'm just like, how can it be better than good and very good? And yet there is this hope that you and I have that when God restores, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be glorious. Chapters 9 through 11, it's as if Paul zooms out to look at what God is doing, not only in the individual but in a more general sense, the salvation of God in all redemptive history, particularly Jew and Gentile. It's important that we have both perspectives. Because if, if we just rest in this gospel on the ground perspective, it will become very man-centric. It will become about me. Like God must have thought I was so special and so great that He saved me. Well, a right understanding of the gospel on the ground says, no, I'm a sinner. Right? What do I have in me that's good? Nothing. So it, you know, but but it's easy to spin off in that and kind of begin to think that that I'm the center. Gospel in the air can leave you very detached. Like you can think, well, God's just doing His thing, but but He doesn't He doesn't even want me to participate because He's just going to do whatever He's doing. No, He wants you to participate. That's why you have this gospel on the ground that says that Jesus came and rescued you and saved you and gave you His righteousness to walk in. And so this morning. We get to look at both, pers- both perspectives. Tim Chester and Steve Timmis in their book, Total Church, put it this way, God is at the center of the gospel word, yet much of evangelism tends to place people in that position. The gospel becomes skewed toward me and how Jesus meets my needs. But the gospel Jesus proclaimed is about God exercising his life-giving rule through his Messiah for his glory. Let's look at this section of Romans through that lens with that in mind this morning. But to see it, we need a miracle. We need God to open our eyes. So let's ask Him for that. Lord, we thank You. We pray that You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We thank You that we've already worshipped. God, we're continuing to worship, that the worship never stops. That this morning, we woke up with breath in our lungs to worship You. God, forgive us for when we withhold that worship until we think that's what we're supposed to do. God, Lord, help us to worship with every breath. God, give us eyes to see you today. Give us eyes to see your redemption, your redemptive story arc. God, that that you are doing something that's bigger than us, but it includes us. Lord, that's amazing. And I pray that that story, that... The, the beauty of the, the gospel would be proclaimed not just here, but at Pineda, Lord, that you would proclaim it as in Cross Point Espanol, that you would proclaim it in, in all of the places where you are being lifted high, Lord. May you receive all the glory. We pray that throughout the world today. We thank you even for that call that was in our scripture reading this morning. That we would go and preach, that we would go and speak, that we would share the gospel because we've believed. Help us to remember that this morning, Lord. Give us a a glimpse of you that we would be changed. In Jesus' name.
Amen. All right, chapter 9. Chapter 9 would, could be labeled God's sovereign wisdom and salvation. What has God done? God in His wisdom has saved. It begins with an answer to a question. It's as if someone is challenging the statement that Paul finishes the end of chapter 8 with. The, the commendation of assurance for the believer. If you remember, the end of chapter 8 is this beautiful holding up that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Paul brings this. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You see, what we have is Paul understanding that because of his faith, he has an assurance that he will never be separated from God. And yet, he, you see this evangelistic heart that he has for the people of God who have not received that truth by faith. Who are somehow striving outside of faith, whether it's of their own works and their own righteousness, but he, he's saying, listen, there are people that have not taken hold of that truth by faith, and my heart is such that I would be cut off, that I would be accursed, that I would actually be separated. I would be the thing that, that he just said couldn't happen. I wish that it would happen so that they would know. So that the people of God who have sat and heard and memorized Scripture and understand it and yet have missed this, this key point, he prays that he would be accursed do we have that kind of zeal? Do we have that kind of love for God's people? Right? For, for, for humanity that God created that we would wish that? And, and if so, then are we like leveraging everything in our lives toward that end? Because I think that the only reason that Paul can say that is because he is leveraging everything in his life toward that end. Because otherwise there's a disconnect. Those two things can't both be true. You can't you know, just sit in your own comfort and your own um, happiness and wish that someone else would believe. Like, like we would leverage everything and, and, and go and tell people if, that, if what he's saying is true in our hearts. And so we, we've got some questions to ask ourselves. Like, do we believe this so much so that we would go and tell people. And we're going to get to that in chapter 10. Like there's this impetus that would drive us to go and preach the gospel. But Paul is saying, listen, these are the people through whom God has given His covenants. Through whom God has shown His grace. Through whom He gave the law to point to their sins so they would recognize their need for a Savior. These are the people of God 
the nation of God that he chose. And yet they haven't taken hold of, by faith, the good news of Christ. I love that Paul just can't, can't talk about the people without talking about Jesus. <laughs> like they're, they're, they're connected so much. He's giving glory to, to the Jews. Like they, they are the people that God has chosen. But in the end, he says, to them belong the patriarchs and their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Like he just breaks out in song at the end because he thinks about Jesus and what he's done. As we continue to read in verse 6, the question is, has, God, has the word of God failed? If, if they had the word of God, and yet they didn't take hold of the word of God by belief, then did the word of God fail? And Paul answers with, with a no, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac your offspring shall be named. See, it was never about a nation. It was never about a, 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 a descent by blood. It was about a people who would take hold of the promises of God and say, those are mine. What God has said is true. And so you begin to see it. And he gives several examples of this, particularly in Isaac and in Jacob. Two stories, Isaac and Ishmael. Maybe you know the stories and you're familiar with them, but I would encourage you to go back this week and read those stories. Like, see how God has saved. See how He chooses Isaac, and, and Abraham receives the promise from God that, that a blessing would come, and yet he also has a, has a struggle of faith and belief. And so then, instead of waiting for the promise, he tries to affect the promise. And so the blessing comes from the promise of God, not through Abraham's trying to work it out. And then you have the same thing with Jacob and Esau. Right? Jacob is, receives the promise even though he's the second born. And so through him comes the promise of God. And so it's always been based on not what we understand is right or what we, what we think the way God should work, but it's in what God has spoken and what He has said. And so you see this in the Old Testament. And so Paul's saying, listen, this has always been what God does. Again, years in the desert to reconcile how grace has come in the person of Jesus, and he points back over and over and over to the Old Testament. It's always been about grace. It's always been about God and what he has said is true. And then Paul goes on to praise the justice of God. Like if... We don't think that this is fair. We don't think that this is just. And yet, God is just. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He told Moses this. Like, no one can argue. None of the Israelites could argue because Moses had already been told that God was going to have mercy on who He's going to have mercy, compassion on whom He's going to have compassion, and so God has always been the one who would choose. God has always been the one who would save. 
We, we see there that without God's intervening mercy, our hearts become hardened. From the garden, right? As we talk about creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That fall piece was us saying, God, on my own I can live. I don't need You. And then that's been part of our DNA since then. We've been, tried to control our own lives. We've tried to been, be Lord of our own lives rather than resting and submitting to His Lordship and finding rest and peace there, we've strived to do it ourselves. And yet, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That hardened piece is hard. We think that, that God, is, God is preventing Pharaoh. But there's a hardening that all of us have that actually requires the intervention of God's mercy to change us. You and I are like Pharaoh, except that God has shown mercy to us. How could He show mercy to us? We, if, if, that's, if that's all the parameters, then it is injustice. Like, Because you and I deserve hell. We deserve death. So then how can it be just? Because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus took the wrath that you and I deserve as sinners, the wrath that Pharaoh deserved as a sinner, but Jesus took your wrath and my wrath. If you are in Christ today, He took your wrath. It was laid on Him so that God would be both just and the justifier like we read earlier in Romans. This is, this is the good news. The, the only way that any of us would take hold of God is because He's been merciful to us and He's given us faith that we would take hold of it. So today, if you have faith and you believe that Jesus has purchased your sin, rejoice in that. Like That's, that's crazy. That's miraculous. That's powerful. That's worthy of all of our worship and all of our lives. And so God is just in showing mercy on whom He will and showing compassion on whom He will. Mercy and justice are found in Jesus. Remember 8.32 where Paul is reminding the Romans of what they have in Christ, what God has done, how He has secured them to Himself. He says in verse 32, He said, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Listen, God has lavished you with love by giving His Son. We, we kind of move through that quickly because we've all heard it. We're like, yep, that's true. But do we sit in it and do we say, yeah, that's true. Lord, who am I that you would love me so much? And then do we live out of that? Because if it's true, it's going to affect the way that we live. 
It means that now everything that I have is a gift of grace that I've been given, and I'm going to respond with generosity in all of life. I'm going to proclaim this good news. Romans 9, 19, and 20 say this. Again, he's interjecting all these questions, and it's questions that I'm not sure have been asked of him, but he's brought to the Scripture. Like, how is this true? How does this align with everything that I grew up learning? This person of Jesus on the road to Damascus, how does he fit into this? And what Paul's realizing is, no, he doesn't fit into this. He is, he is God. I fit into this story. This, this whole story revolves around him. I need to know him and see how the story speaks to that. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? I have questions about just days. Like, where God, why is today happening like this? God made this day. Who am I to come back to God and say, the day that you've given me is not good enough. It's not, it's not what I want. And who are you to say, God, you can't do with my life what you want to do. And so we have this beautiful imagery of the, of the pot that's on the wheel, an inanimate object, telling the Creator what He can and cannot do as He's creating. And it's not, Paul didn't come up with this. Again, this is one of those throwbacks to, to the Scriptures, to Isaiah. And so you have this this understanding that the, Jew, that the Jewish people had that Paul had grown up in, and he's saying, man, this is how that fits in. God can make me into anything He wants to make me for His glory. And He has. He's created vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. Has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom He has called, not, only, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then he goes and he quotes Hosea twice. So he's tying all of this beauty into who God is. The story is not about the clay pot. The story is about the potter. The story is not about creation. It is about the Creator. So then the question is not about my life, but it's, God, what is the story that you're telling? And then how do I participate in that great story? We participate first and foremost by being saved. By being shown mercy. By being shown His compassion. God's compassion and mercy are displayed in us. That's how we contribute to the story. And then we get to go out and we get to tell others about what God has done. That He took me, a, a vessel that doesn't deserve His mercy, and He's showered me with His grace. He's redeemed me and saved me because of His Son. Who is this story about? The story is not about us. It is about God. Again, stepping back, 
all those beautiful truths, the doctrines that you see of justification that have been really brought home in chapters 1 through 8. He's saying, listen, all of those things are beautiful and they're true and they're good and they're just one part of the bigger story of who God is and what He's done and what He is doing. Paul's placing the individual story of the Gospel on the ground inside this larger story, this glorious story of the Gospel in the air, how, he's re- how He is redeeming and making all things new. And Romans 9 ends with praise and wonder, like at the salvation of God's people. Verses 30-33, through What shall we say then, that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The glory is for the rock. The glory is for this, this stone that has saved those who were, could not save themselves. And we have a hard time with that. Because we want to base it on our works. We want to base it on something that we've done. And yet if the Gospel is true, then you and I have done nothing to deserve it. Jesus has done all of the work for a people who could not do anything and redeem them. Called them by name. And said, you are mine and I am yours. That's the beauty of the Gospel. He picks up in chapter 10 and continues to the, to finish this thought. It says in verses 3 through 4 of chapter 10 For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Before we um, make this all about the, the Jews who did not receive Christ by faith, um, there, there's a remnant, and we're going to get to remnant, but there's a remnant both in the, in the Jewish heritage and there's a remnant in the Christian heritage. There's a, you see, anyone who would say that I'm, I'm working towards something for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own. How often does that happen in the Christian church? Pretty often. Like you and I, we struggle with it kind of on a daily level, but I, I think that there's churches that are actually preaching that. That you can seek a righteousness of your own. If you, A little bit of Jesus added to your good works is what's going to save you. And those people are lost. They will not be saved. They're resting on something other than Jesus. And so... Again, I'm not saying that you and I, as we struggle with that on a, on a daily basis, because I think that we run back to that place of repentance. We run back to that prayer of confession. God, I've, I've strived on my own. I've sought to my own righteousness instead of resting in yours. And then we come back to that place that says, and I'm going to rest in you. I'm going to trust in your righteousness. But we can quickly kind of separate ourselves from 
from what Paul is saying here and say, well, he's talking about the Jews. No, he's talking about anyone who would not take hold of the righteousness of Christ by faith. And so today, you and I have to take hold of that by faith. We have to say that that right, what Christ purchased is for me. I love that as much as Paul loves the the people of God, his thoughts are always going back to Christ. That verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's all about Christ and what he has done. The next few verses can be tough to understand, so I'm, I'm looking forward to when we come back to them for a little bit deeper understanding, but right now I'm just, just going to give you a little bit. Five through, and it's super helpful from Jeremiah, but five through uh, seven say this, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will ascend into, or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. It's tough, but but I think that what he's saying is: Listen, who are we? Are we trying to lower ourselves or raise ourselves? But Christ has already done all the work for us. He's contrasting this self-righteousness based on our works with the grace righteousness that we receive in the work of Christ by faith. Pastor Jeremiah said it this way, these are the images of the effort of man to strive for righteousness. To go up to heaven or perhaps by some penance descend is to reject the reality of the gospel. Jesus is the one who has come down from heaven and Jesus is the one who has triumphed over death. Righteousness is the result of God's work, not ours. Again, the central idea of Paul's message to the Romans is that we have the righteousness of Christ. There's a, a gospel that is powerful to save, and it is because of the work of Jesus. And so we always run there. We always point there. The story never ends with us. It always points to the one who saves, Jesus I know that last week was Mission Sunday, but we never get to leave from mission. Like Everything should revolve around, like, you have been saved by grace, now what do you do? You live a life on mission, and Paul writes that in verses 14 through 17 of chapter 10. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We don't get to believe, and that be the end. We get to believe, and then we get to go. We saw it in Isaiah last week. He believes because he sees the angel take the coal, touch it to his lips, and now his guilt is gone and his sin has been forgiven, and then he goes. God says, who will go? And he says, I will go. Like That's, that's part of what I am now. I have been saved. I have been cleansed. Now I get to go. Paul says the same thing. You get to go. You get to preach to those who haven't heard so that they would be able to believe too. 
but they have to hear. So we got to go. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean this beautiful thing of going overseas. It, it might just look really mundane and glorious. Glorious, ordinary stuff. Might be at a park. Might be at work. Might be with your kids. And finally, it's the day that you share with them this beautiful truth of the Gospel. And, and by faith, they take hold of it. At dinner. Like, I, I don't know. It's, it could be that God's calling you to go overseas, and we, we need to be ready for that. We need to be asking Him, Lord, do you, do you want more from me? Or, God, what are you doing in the ordinary day-to-day right now? But they're not going to hear unless somebody preaches. Romans 10, through, uh, 20 through 21. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You see, he's finishing up chapter 10 with this proof from Scripture that this gospel has been spread and will continue to be spread throughout the earth to those who would believe inside and outside of Israel. It's taken hold of by faith. And so in chapter 11, you get to this faith-filled remnant. He begins by saying, listen, not, not all of Israel is lost. Look at me. I'm, a, I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew. And I believe what Christ has said. He points to Abraham, also, who took hold of what, what Christ said. He points to Elijah, who believed what Christ has said. And so... You have this beauty of Jews who are holding on to the promise. And you have the beauty of the Gentiles who are being grafted into that promise. And it's expanding to this remnant, which is a key biblical the- theology term, like the understanding of a remnant. And we talked about it a lot when we were wa- walking through the minor prophets, that there was judgment and that many, many were actually punished for their unbelief, for their idolatry. But God preserved a remnant through which came Christ. The one who would redeem and who would save. And he expands it to the remnant in verses 5 and 6. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He's just hammering this home. If you think that you've purchased this grace, it's not grace anymore. If you think you've done anything to deserve it, it's not grace anymore. It's not a gift. As soon as we try to pay for something, it's no longer a gift. You have received the gift of the righteousness of Christ. And he hammers it home over and over and over because he needs to believe it too. Right? The more we grow in Christ, the more tempted we are to believe that somehow we're earning this thing. Because we see the fruit of what God is doing in us. But that is a miracle. Not one that we've done, but one that He has done. He planted a small seed and it's beginning to grow. And it's beautiful. But it's still the grace of God. Salvation to the Jews for the sake of the Gentiles and to the Gentiles for the sake of the Jews. Like This is, this is really beautiful. You need to see it in verses 11 through 15. He says, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. 
Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? I love it. God's saving Gentiles so that the Jews would be jealous and take hold of Him by faith and say, man, they're, they're taking hold of this thing by faith. And vice versa, He's saving Jews so that the Gentiles would say, man, those people are believing the Word of God. And if it's true, then that means that you and I can believe the Word of God. Like, that's awesome. God is, is saving both for the sake of the other. And, and so imagine you're sitting here in a room hearing this letter read, and you're sitting next to a Jew, a, you a Gentile are sitting next to a Jew, and you're looking at that person and saying, God saved you, and He's saving me, and both of us are being saved for the sake of the other. That's powerful. Man, you think that, that that's going to produce a love for one another in them? Yeah. And a love for those outside of that, that gathering? Yeah. And that's what you and I need. Why did God save me? For the sake of others. So that others would hear and see the grace of God in my life and realize that they are not beyond His reach. Because if you know Joel, you know I am a sinner saved by grace. And the more that you hang out with me, the more you realize that. And so we need to be hanging out with other people who need to hear this good news. We need to be going to the lost and the broken. Why has God saved you? For the sake of others. Why did God save the Jews? For the sake of the Gentiles. Why did God save the Gentiles? For the sake of the Jews. They would be jealous and say, man, I want to take hold of that too. That grace that they've received. In Romans uh, 11, 18-22, we see the kindness and severity of God. Paul never presses into one attribute of God without seeing the fullness of God. And so he sees in God both kindness and severity. Both mercy and wrath. Both compassion and justice. 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches, those that have been grafted in. If you, are, if you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. I don't think this is saying that you're going to lose your salvation. Your salvation was never based on your works. Even your ability to, to have faith is a gift that God has given you. The gift of belief. But what we need to recognize is that there are those that are outside of that belief. 
that will receive the punishment and the wrath of God. So we need to go to them. We need to recognize the grace that, we, that we've received. It has a weight. It has a severity. There's, there's a, a soberness, sobriety that comes from that, right? Like God has saved me. A severe God, a, a God who takes seriously His holiness has come to a sinner like me and grafted me in. And so now then, what do I do with that? I live out of that. I live out of that truth in a way that would glorify Him and honor Him. Finally, in two, two more sections here, mercy on all, Romans eleven twenty nine through 32 He says this, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. I love that verse. Like I, 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 it's probably the first time I've read that in a way that it's really impacted me. For God has consigned all to disobedience. Like, why are we all sinners? So that the only way that we come to God is through His mercy. He's, the, the playing field is leveled if all of us are consigned to disobedience. Then that means all of us have the ability to receive the mercy of God. None of us have to rest on our own Self-righteousness. All of us get to run to the righteousness of Christ. And finally, he finishes with the doxology. All of this truth, all of this grand scope, this gospel in the air leads to worship of the One who is doing it. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Amen? Like, like He can't... He interjects. The, the, the letter's not done. But it feels like it's done because He's worshiping. Like we get to the end and we have to sing. But let's let that shape that for us also. Like when we get done singing... It's not the end. It's just an interjection of worship because He's worthy of everything. This God who saves, this God who saves both Jew and Gentile, the one who does it for, for, for the other one, right? For the sake of the other one. This God who has called people to Himself to receive Him by faith is worthy of worship. To Him be glory forever. Amen. It's a story. It's a story about God. It's a story about the Creator. It's not about the pot. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's a story about God. And yet in that story, He has done an individual piece. He has rescued you. He has saved you. Not because of your righteousness, but because of His. He's grafted you in. And there's a beauty to that. That now we get to be part of this bigger story. We connect that story of God to our individual stories and that connection rhythm. 
We become a community that sits at the feet of Jesus. Like when we take communion, it's a, because we're a community that have been grafted in, that have been saved by grace, that He's poured out. He, he did not spare His own Son, but sent him to the, took Him to the cross for you and for me. And now we're part of this people that have been redeemed. That redemption story that one day is going to be fully restored in the new heaven and the new earth. But in, even now we get to participate in that glory, in that worship. So the story is not about you or me. The story is about God today. Let's continue to worship in prayer. Lord, we thank you. God, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you. Thank you for saving sinners like us. Thank you for a people that you have called your own. Thank You for the nation of Israel, Lord, that You gave so many good gifts and You brought the greatest gift, the gift of Your Son through that nation, Lord. We thank You that You have saved by faith both Jew and Gentile. God, we thank You that we're part of a bigger story and we pray that the weight of of Your salvation in our lives would stir in us worship, Lord. Worship that would lead to proclamation. Worship that would lead to rejoicing. Worship that would lead to glory for You. Because You are worthy. Lord, even now as we take communion, may we remember. May we remember the price that was paid to save sinners like us. May we rejoice in the glory of God today. We ask this in your name. Amen.